Good morning. The reading today is Colossians 3:18 through 4:1. Wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants fairly and justly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thanks, Caleb. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. Um, I just want to say that uh, actually Cheryl's correct. Um, I, I have never been a Top Gun fan. In fact, um, how many of you remember Dave Massey, who is now, he's a chaplain in the Air Force, and we're hoping that he's going to come back in, in the fall and we're going to be able to do some fun stuff with him on Sunday morning here, but um, that was his favorite movie if you remember. And, and it's not just that it was his favorite movie, but it was how it was his favorite movie. It was really annoying. And so we had to really just get on him about how awful that movie really was. And so, but Top Gun Maverick came out. You got to go to it. And, and I have to admit, I walked out of that theater thinking that was a great, great movie. So yeah. Um, but what I found is, we'll get to the sermon. Don't worry. Jesus, Jesus is Lord. Yes. But what I found... Here's what you need to do with Tom Cruise movies, is go to the movie expecting nothing, and then you'll be pleasantly surprised. That's how you go to Tom Cruise movies. So it's the best advice I have today, and we're talking about marriage. (laughs) By the way, if you're new, I'm Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you're here. Welcome. Uh, We'll talk to you later. Anyway, I want to thank the last two Sundays uh, our two Tylers uh, preached, and, and I really appreciate that. Uh, I was away for a few days at the camp in Iowa, uh, seeing my grandson, and then I was away for a few days on a little study break up in central uh, Wisconsin, and, and it was great. I got a lot of work done. It was very productive, but I, I just really thank our staff and our pastors uh, for being able to just carry on. Uh, one other announcement that we have is um, starting on July 3rd, we're starting this new 22-week series called We Want a King, and it's about Saul, David, and Solomon uh, in First and Second Samuel and a little bit in First Kings. And so um, the elders got together, and uh, Elder Nick Oviedo, Tyler Thompson, and myself decided that it would be fun to have a companion Wednesday night series for seven or eight weeks uh, that'll start on June 15th. Now, the first time I talked about this, I really butchered this announcement a couple weeks ago, if you remember. I have all my facts correct now. Um, we are going to start not at 7, but we're going to start at 6.30 because we're going to order dinner for everybody. So we need you to RSVP. So we want to have dinner together in this room. And then around 7 o'clock, we'll do about a 20-minute uh, background talk on the chapters that we're reading in the book. And then um, Nick will come up and, and uh, he'll talk about uh, uh, having us at each of our round tables get into a discussion, and there will be four questions. So it's going to be a great study. It's a companion study to what we're going to be doing on Sunday morning for quite some time. And it's a great way to um, not only learn more about the background of the Old Testament and the kingdoms, 
in the Old Testament, but it's also a great way to develop relationships and community. So I would, I, I, I don't press very much, but I am pressing on you right now. A lot of the RCs don't meet during the summer, so I know you have an extra night, and, and I know you're thinking, well, I want to watch Netflix. Well, this is better than Netflix. All of Netflix stories come from the Old Testament. They're just reworked, okay? So we're the original Netflix, all right? So here we go. Um, this is... What we're going to do the next three weeks is sort of a series within a series. Uh, it's, um, and the reason is because it's where Paul goes in the next nine verses, which will include uh, chapter 4, verse 1. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about parenting. And essentially, he's going to talk about workplace. So we're, we're going to talk about those kinds of relationships over the next three weeks. It's, in a sense, it's a topical series in the midst of a strictly exegetical series where we are going verse by verse through the book of uh, Colossians. And, and what we're going to talk about primarily is what the gospel should be doing in the midst of all of those relationships, according to what Paul, filled by the Holy Spirit, has communicated to us. And so I have some, sort of like some intro material, some background stuff that I want to get to before we talk about marriage today. Next week will be parenting and marketplace will be on the 19th. Uh, so two major considerations out of the gate. Number one, one of the implications of this section that Paul uh, brings us is Paul is pointing out that there is not one single area in our lives that should not be lived in submission to Jesus first. And that should dictate everything else that we do in these relationships. We don't get to expect Christian ethics in the home, but not practice them in the marketplace. We don't get to be a Christian with our kids, but not with our friends, etc., etc., etc. This uh, point always brings to mind a, a story that Tom Schrader has told over and over and over again. Tom was our founding, one of our founding pastors, and um, he told this story many times. He became a Christian, and he was still in the real estate business, and he went into a, a meeting where they were supposed to close escrow on a deal, and somebody was in there, a, a major player was in there, and, and he's a, a kind of a well-known Christian in the Christian community, attending one of the churches in the community. This is years ago, and, and this guy sabotaged the deal, and, and Tom would argue that he did stuff certainly um, unethically and possibly illegally. And Tom said he made, he said this was a mistake, but he was still young in his faith. And so he went and confronted the guy after the meeting. And he said to the guy, hey, you know, I thought you were a Christian. And the guy said, I am, but I never let my faith affect how I do my business. That's a problem. And we need to recognize that. So these principles uh, permeate every one of our uh, relationships. Here's the second thing. This teaching turns upside down the culture that Paul is in. I don't want to take a little time to try to explain this. I, I, I usually have more time to explain this, so I hope that I'm clear in the midst of this. One of the things that Paul does is he deconstructs the current culture surrounding manhood and household codes and then reconstructs them with, through a gospel lens. Now, now, some of you hear that word deconstruct, and, and some of you get nervous, and others of you are like, oh, cool, we get to do deconstruction, because deconstruction is really cool, and everybody's deconstructing everything. And that's true. It's true. I, I, I teach at GCU and at PBCC, and, and everybody's talking about, we're going to deconstruct this, we're going to deconstruct that. And my question is always, then what? And there's never an answer. It's just deconstruction for deconstruction purposes, and we're going to just tear everything down and then see what happens. Well, that's not a good plan. Paul does tear down the current cultural milieu that he's in 
with what he teaches, but then he builds it back up through a gospel lens. That's what we're supposed to do. Sure, go ahead and deconstruct stuff, but then rebuild it through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of gospel. And so, first of all, he's deconstructing manhood in their culture, which also deconstructs these household codes, which insists that the man was everything and everybody else was nothing. So the, the husband, the father, the master of the house, he was everything, the kids, the wife, the bondservant, nothing. And Paul tears all of that down and builds it back up through the lens of the gospel. So one of the things that Paul says here is that there are no second-class people or people without rights or dignity in God's kingdom and economy. And Paul does not just give instruction to wives and children and bondservants to submit he does, because that would be normal in their culture, of course. But here's the difference. He's also giving instructions to the man, the father, the master, the, uh, the, the husband to also submit, and everybody's supposed to submit to Christ. That's the goal here. He does something new. What, if he just told everybody else what to do, that would make sense in their culture. But he does something that... No other philosopher or teacher, with the exception of perhaps a few Jewish rabbis, not many, but a few Jewish rabbis in that Greco-Roman Mediterranean culture, he does something that none of them would do. He gives instructions, responsibilities, and accountability to husbands, fathers, and bosses. And here's the truth that Paul lays out. Husbands, fathers, and bosses are also accountable. And, and they've never really been held accountable before. So this is really new. This would have been jaw-dropping in their cultural milieu. And a little bit more before we actually get into our two verses for today. Uh, I know some of you are thinking, well, I'm not married right now, and I don't have kids. And, well, I do have a job, so maybe I'll come the third. Okay, here you go. If you're not married now, maybe someday you will be, okay? Ben Bear just got married, okay? So there is hope for everybody. Anyway, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I got to take a shot at him, you know. I'm also really disappointed that they're not at church this morning, so I don't know what their problem is. It's just amazing to me. Anyway, um, you may, you might be someday, okay? If you're not a parent now, okay. Jackie and I waited five years before we had our first uh, child, so maybe not, maybe not now, but maybe someday, or maybe you're a grandparent and this could really help you, or maybe you're gonna, you're considering foster care or adoption. This might help in some way. And if you're not in the marketplace now, you might be soon. And, of course, the principles that we talk about during these next three weeks transfer into just about everything. But I want us to remember the most important part of this. These relationships are discussed by Paul in the wake of his exhorting us in chapter 3 to set our minds on the things that are above, to put to death in us those things that are earthly and worldly, and to put on kindness, humility, meekness, and patience... That's the first 13 verses of Colossians. So remember that these verses we're going to look at the next three weeks are in the context of those instructions that Paul gives us. And then in verse 14, above all, put on love. That would be the agape love, not any of the other potential loves that he could have used. He used the agape love, which is different from the other loves. All the other loves are that you love somebody because it is worthy of your love. 
Agape love is different because it's not, it, you don't love because of the worthiness of the person being loved. Jesus said, agape your enemies. He's saying, I know there's nothing in your mind that's worthy of them being loved, but love them anyway because agape love is rooted in the character of the one, being, of the one doing the loving. And you get that character from Christ in you, Christ in me. And so he says, above all, put on agape love, selfless, unconditional, compassionate love. And then the last two verses before he gets into this area, 16 and 17, he writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then the ESV translation, which is the one we used, they insert this little title before the next verse. Rules for Christian households. I'm sorry, but that annoys me. Maybe it's a fairly decent description. I don't even know. I don't even care. The fact that they inserted that makes the reader think, okay, Paul is done with that. Now he's moving on to something new. He's not. These last two verses are transitioning into these three very important relationships, and we need to be able to see that. So as you read through it, um, just forget about those little subtitles that they put in there. Just keep reading. And then he gets to it. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So we don't have a lot of verses today, but the verses that we consider need to be considered, first of all, within the context of the rest of Colossians chapter 3. And since we don't have a lot of verses today, it's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to explicate these verses. I'll try my best to explain them in the time that I have. But then I'm going to transition into what I've been calling sort of a a marriage mind dump of things that I promise you, if you implement these things, your marriage will improve. I'm not saying it'll be great. I'm just saying it'll be better than it is if you would just think about and implement these things. And the reason is because all of these items are rooted, rooted in biblical and gospel truth, wisdom, and love. And here's my <clears throat> angst today. Normally, in presenting this kind of material, this marriage material, I've got four sessions of an hour each, and I had to kind of hone it down into what I'm hoping is 40 minutes, okay? So it's going to be really fast. I'm going to go quickly, and um, I know some of you like to take notes, and I'm a note taker, and I understand that, and I appreciate that. I would encourage you to just put your pen down and just listen, and then if you want notes, go back to the YouTube uh, cast or the podcast or whatever. Just, just try to absorb what we're looking at. And so... Here are these verses again. Let me just read these verses again, 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So we're going to start with this idea of submitting as is fitting to the Lord. And we're going to talk about wives first. And, and ladies, I just want you to know that eventually we're going to get to the husbands. And I've got plenty of ammunition for them, so don't worry, okay? So how to understand this idea is as fitting in the Lord... What that reminds us of is the fact that the wife, this is not a command for the wife to lose her agency, to lose her sense of identity, to be forced to sin, or to endure abuse, but rather for her to remember that the ultimate authority in her relationships is Christ our Lord. That's what it means. Now, 
Right out of the gate, I've been doing this a long time. I know, I know for a fact, right out of the gate, some of you, the first question you have is, what are the exceptions? Okay, maybe, may I be so bold as to say, that's a problem, okay? If your inclination right out of the gate is to say, I want to know the exceptions to this biblical truth, you have an attitude problem and you need to change your attitude. Your first inclination should be, all right, how am I going to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit and the resurrected Christ in me? How am I going to be able to do this? How am I going to get the eyes off myself and on to others, which we are called to do in the gospel? Okay? So first we need to figure out how is it that we can live in this tension that Jesus commands us to. Jesus calls for wives to respect and affirm her husband. And yes, the answer is even when he's not respectable and affirmable, and he's not always respectable and affirmable, can I get an amen? Yeah, you're frightened. All right, I get it. All right. I, I just know that for a fact. But this is what this is about. This is about... A man's, generally speaking, a man's greatest need in this relationship is to be respected and to be affirmed. We see that actually in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33, which Paul wrote at about the same time he wrote um, the letter to the Colossians. He wrote Ephesians. And in Ephesians 5.33, he goes back and helps further define what it means to submit to a husband. It means that you need to show him respect, even when he's not respectable. Okay. Now, now I'm, I'm going to unpack what that means, and we're going to talk about it, but here's one thing you need to hear right out of the gate. This doesn't mean you have no agency, and this doesn't mean that you shouldn't have the hard but helpful conversations with your husband when it is needed, and believe me, it is needed. And husbands, you should listen to her. You picked her as your wife. She has input. But wives... How you go about this is actually more important than the message you might have for your husband. How you go about it. And I'm just going to say it bluntly because I've been saying everything else bluntly so far. Because sometimes that's what's called for. Here you go. Even if he deserves it, and I know he probably does, if you emotionally emasculate your husband, especially in front of other people, but also even privately, if you emotionally emasculate your husband, no matter how right you are, no matter how good your point is, he won't hear you. And in fact, you'll start to drive him further down the road to embitterment and resentment. You need to understand that. And this is part of the fall. It's part of sin. I fully admit that. We men need respect and affirmation, not because we deserve it, but because of, of sin. This was never an issue in the garden before Genesis chapter 3. I get that. I understand that. But the single greatest emotional need that we have is respect and admiration. And so, wives, you need to learn by the power of the Holy Spirit how to be his truth-telling partner while not invalidating him. Well, that's hard. Yes, it's hard. You're probably going to practice it for the rest of your life. It is hard. There's tension there. I get it. So wives, here's something you can work on, and it will probably be for the rest of your life. It's how to have these needed hard conversations with your husband, when to have these needed hard conversations, and which things to actually go to him with, and which things to simply let go. This is another big point. If you take everything, every last thing to your husband, trust me, 
Sooner or later, he's going to quit listening to you. You've heard the saying, if everything is important, then nothing is important. And I, and I just, I, I'll give, Jackie's going to get embarrassed by this. Oh, I think she left. No, she's still here. All right, anyway, she's going to get embarrassed by this. But Jackie is really good at this. When Jackie brings something to me, and it's going to be a hard conversation, in my mind, I know she's already let a hundred other things go, and I ought to listen to this. You see how that works? If everything is worth bringing to your husband, eventually he's just, he's just going to tune you out. He's just going to give up. Okay? So you need to understand that. So wives, you have agency, you have position and status, but it is all in submission to Jesus and not to your flesh. Now, it's the same thing for husbands, but in a different way. Husbands and wives have different emotional needs. This is mutual submission. I've always been fascinated by the people who actually teach that wives are the only ones that have to submit. Okay, I don't get that. That's not biblical. It's not the, biblical, the overall biblical narrative. And oh, by the way, what does Paul say in Ephesians? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and died for the church. So husbands don't have to submit. They just need to die. Okay, so cool. All right, that's really cool. So mutual submission. What we need to understand is that the word mutual is not a synonym for same. This is why, as husbands and wives, you need to have conversations about what you need for each other, understanding that you're not going to get all of those needs met from each other. Ultimately, your greatest needs are going to be met by Christ, but you're called in the gospel to try to meet each other's needs as well, and the needs are going to be different. I have different needs than Jackie. She has different needs than me, and we talk about that in order to make that work. So Paul says, you, husbands, you need to love your wives, and you can't be harsh. So you can't be embittered, resentful, and contemptuous. And, and like I said, we get, a, we get a fuller picture of this, actually, in Ephesians. Let me read that to you. Where, where uh, Paul writes this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, the church, that he, Jesus, might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he, Jesus, might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church." And so what Paul's driving at there is this overarching theme in the Bible of the two becoming one flesh. No one ever hates, and, and then he does quote uh, um, Genesis chapter 2. He says, where, where the two become one. And so husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church. So here's the thing, guys. And by the way, that's agape love in there. Husbands, agape your wives selflessly, compassionately, unconditionally. Okay, so here's the thing. And those of you who are not yet married, you need to listen to because you'll need this mindset in order to eventually become a husband who is in a thriving marriage. Generally speaking, and just like for husbands, and again, I admit this is part of the fall, it's part of uh, the inherent nature of sin, but for nearly 100%, not all, but nearly 100% of wives, their most coveted emotional need in marriage is affection and intimacy. And that's really hard because most guys are not wired this way. But that is no excuse for you not to pursue excellence in this area. Let me put it this way. 
most of us aren't wired to be thinking in terms of affection and intimacy. We're wired to, you know, fix things and, and ask for the remote. I get that, okay? So I understand all that, but we need to start thinking about this through her lens and even ask her and get some help from her. But here's the thing. You don't necessarily have to get an A. You don't even have to get a B or a B minus. Here's what we're going for. We're going for just a passing grade. If you can get a D plus in this, that would be awesome. Okay? You would, you would be on your way if you could just get a passing grade in this. Furthermore, creating an environment of affection and intimacy is something that you need to work on a lot. And not just once a month or once a quarter, but rather every day. And doing this well will also create something else that wives highly value, and that is a feeling of security. So guys, part of this means that you have to start to understand cherishing behaviors and not just understand them, but exercise them, manifest them in your life for and with your wife. They become really important and helpful. So here you go. You know how you dated your wife before you got married to her? If you aren't already, you need to continue to date and court your wife. Jackie and I still have a date night every week. I'm still courting her. I am still in the marketing process with Jackie, and we will be married for 35 years in September. I'm still trying to snag her, okay? That's my mindset. Do you understand that? We need to keep doing that. Also, here's one that I just I know was really wonderful for Jackie, uh, especially when we had kids. Uh, give, your, give your wife a night off every week. So I gave her a night off every single week when our kids were little. I would take the kids, and she could go and do something. She could stay at home and watch TV. Or usually what she did was she went and played volleyball. That's her thing. She just went out and played volleyball. So that's what she did. But I gave her a night off once a week. Here's one for you guys. Now listen up, guys, especially if you have little kids, okay? If you are an involved, doting father, research has proved conclusively that if you're involved and engaged and, and spend time with your children, that your wife feels cherished, and here you go, it also stirs up sexual passions in her. Are you stunned that I just said that in church? It's just true, okay? So guys are like, let's go home and take care of the kids, okay? So that would be really good, all right? So other things, open doors for her, hold her hand. Yes, even in public, hold her hand. Even after you're married, hold her hand. Here's one, and you need to know a little background on this one. Here you go. Uh, th uh, there, there is no part of the human body that grosses me out more than feet. I just hate them. Even pretty feet, they're awful, okay? They're just, they're just awful. I hate summertime in Phoenix because sa it's sandal season. It's like, I, this is why I leave during the summer, okay? So I don't want to be around. I hate it. Okay, here you go. I give Jackie a lot of foot rubs, okay? I do, because it, who doesn't like a foot rub, right? So you can ask her about, well, don't ask her about it. She's already embarrassed. But I give her a lot of foot rubs. We'll sit on the couch. We'll watch our shows. I'll give her a foot rub. And some of you guys are like, ooh, I just can't do it. Here you go. Put on some gloves. You know? We, we, we just came out of the pandemic. Everybody's got gloves and masks. You know, put that on. And then you can, then you can do it. Okay? Um, here you go. Leave her 
loving and encouraging notes. Post-it notes are great, but occasionally actually spend $6 on a card. And then here's the other thing about buying a card. You know, you're in Walgreens, whatever, buying whatever. Stop and get a card for her. And, and then here you go. This is really important. Don't just get her a card and hand it to her. Write something in it, okay? Okay, love Frank is a good start, but eventually we want to graduate to you are beautiful, love Frank. And then... Eventually, more prose, okay? So that's really helpful as well. Um, here you go. Send her flowers simply because it's the first Tuesday of the week, all right? Um, make her dinner, or at least go out and get her dinner. At least do that, okay? Wash the dog, put gas in her car, put your dirty clothes in the hamper, and put your dishes in the dishwasher, okay? Believe it or not, those are cherishing behaviors, and I know, I hear that, I hear that, hey, wait a minute, I'm bringing home the bacon. Well, you're supposed to, okay? In fact, read your, read your Bible, that's the bare minimum. So I'm calling you to up your game. Paul is calling you to up your game. You know, I will tell you, everyone, everyone, I've been doing this a long time, everyone complains about how hard and unfair their job is in a biblical gospel-centered marriage. Everyone complains about that. Wives constantly whine, moan, and complain about the submission thing as if the Bible asks no one else ever to submit in anything. And husbands often complain about all the extra stuff that they're expected to do as if nothing else in marriage is expected beyond the bare minimum. No one seems to embrace the great privilege that we have as married people of getting to be Jesus to the most important person in our life. That's a great privilege. And this is why Tim Keller writes so passionately in his great book on marriage about taking the gaze of victimhood off yourself and the gaze of indictment off your spouse. Take the gaze of victimhood off yourself and the gaze of indictment off your spouse. Okay? How much time do we have left? All right. Now for the mind dump. Uh, I've been thinking about this in a different way. I wanted to just give a list of what I think are helpful characteristics of, of a thriving, gospel-centered marriage. And, and the first characteristic is humility. Be humble in your marriage. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself, Look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Now, right out of the gate, some of you are going, that's not in the context of marriage. Oh, okay, so forget about it. Don't think about your spouse. Don't be humble before your spouse. I hear this sometimes. You know, there's not a whole lot in the, in, in the Bible about marriage. Yeah, there is. Love one another, encourage one another, protect one another, serve one another. That, that applies to marriage, too. And so does Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Here's another one. Show respect and honor. You have married an image bearer of God. Show respect and honor, even when it's hard to do that. And I know it gets hard to do that. But disrespect and contempt are marriage killers. They just are, especially that contempt thing. Okay? And here you go, beware of what people call death by a thousand little cuts or pinpricks. 
If you're one of those spouses who's just constantly doing this little tiny jab, okay, this little, this little offhanded, passive-aggressive prodding that you think is going to get you somewhere, it will get you somewhere. It'll get you embitterment, resentment, and contempt. And that's not helpful, okay? Uh, here's another one, sacrifice. There's going to be sacrifice in marriage. Our whole culture is so bent the wrong way on marriage. You're going to find your soulmate. And, and the implication of that is you're never going to have to work in your marriage. <laughs> That's just, it's just ridiculous. Okay, It is absolutely ridiculous. Marriage is hard work, but so is every other relationship. It's hard work. And you're going to have to work at this. There's going to be some sacrifice. Jesus even says to the husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You also need to cherish your spouse. And I'm going to go to one of the two books in Scripture that is rated NC-17, and that would be the Song of Solomon, to read to you a little bit. So here is what Solomon says about his bride in chapter 4 of the Song of Solomon. He says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Now, I, I understand that in our current context, if you tell somebody your hair is like a flock of goats, that's probably not going to go very far. Okay, I get that. But in their context, the idea was that it was black goats leaping down the side of a green grassy hill. And if you think about the color contrast, it really is a beautiful sight. In their context, this was the highest of compliments. I want you to be able to see that, okay? And then the next one, probably not one that we would necessarily use today. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing. Okay, again, you know, hey baby, you have nice teeth. I understand that's not going to get you very far, but again, in, in their, think about, they didn't have dentists. She's got great teeth. They look like little lambs, little white lambs. She's beautiful. He's cherishing her. He loves her. You can come up with your own stuff that's contemporary, okay? All right? Um, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. You have all your teeth in your head. That's awesome. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Pomegranates were a big deal in their culture. Okay, big deal. Po the... The skin of a pomegranate was actually highly valued and highly prized. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. And he says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. I've told this story before. The first time I saw Jackie, I was undone. And this, these two verses here remind me of that. And it, it was like a Jim and Pam thing. It took a couple of years, but finally, love won out. Okay? But I just, I was absolutely undone. And I remind her of that even now, today, 34 and a half years into marriage, I remind her of how undone I was the first time I saw her. Now... The wife talking to Solomon. She says, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, 
Now that's a compliment in their, in their context. He's distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black and raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping with liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So cherish each other. Cherish each other. Now, you may not be able to come up with words as wonderful as that, but you can come up with something. And just making the effort is, is uh, worthwhile. Understand that a lack of consideration for your spouse that we seem to give to others we don't even know, that adds up over time. We need to be as, as thoughtful towards our spouses as we are to others. Then there's grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Marriages need a lot of grace. They need grace and they need forgiveness. And the reason is because when you get married, you are now living in a tight crucible with each other. You're going to get in each other's way. Occasionally, you're going to be like the San Antonio Spurs and you're going to want to throw an elbow. You need to learn how to dance with each other. Okay? This is important. Understand that crucible. You need grace to do that. And then, of course, you need forgiveness. Colossians 3.13, just a few verses before this. Be quick to forgive just as Christ has forgiven you. And then you need hope. You need hope in your marriage. Um, in Keller's book, which, by the way, his, it's a, I've read hundreds of books on marriage. This is the best book I've read on marriage, which is uh, The Meaning of Marriage. I highly recommend it. He says that generally research shows that it takes 10 years to learn how to be married. 10 years. One of my favorite chapters in the book is chapter 5, learning how to love the stranger you married. You think you know the person you married. You don't. And you're going to spend the next 10 years finding that out. Okay? So those first 10 years can be the toughest. Uh, the most um, common years for divorce, I've read, are year 7 and year 25. So people say, well, year 7 is the 7-year itch, and perhaps that might be true for some. But more often, year 7 is the year when you finally realize, this is really hard. This is really hard, and my spouse is the problem, of course, and so I'm out. Okay? And yet, longitudinal research clearly shows, clearly shows that those who contemplate divorce during the first 10 years but stay together anyway report that after five more years, their marriage is significantly even wildly better than it was and they're glad they stayed in the marriage. It gets better. So it's worth it to stay all in. Uh, two more. Confession and repentance. If you want to keep the gaze on yourself then do it in this area, confession and repentance. Take ownership of your part in the trouble that your marriage might have. And also, can I just throw this out too? I, I just want you all to remember, I meet with a lot of couples, and it's my privilege to be able to do that. But many times I'll meet with a couple, and I'll listen to them kind of line list their problems, and, and I'm listening, and I'm, and I'm like, that's marriage. <laughs> you have no special problems. You have the same problems everybody else has. 
your expectations are just too high. And I believe that is a result of living in the culture that we live in, where you're just going to find your soulmate, and then you can just lay around and do whatever you want the rest of the time. And it's their job to make you happy. That's not what marriage is about. Then there's empathy. Empathy, good grief. This is one of the most frustrating areas for me. The number of spouses who are so completely unwilling to see any issue from any other point of view than their own, let alone their spouse, that they supposedly love and cherish, it's just mind-boggling. We've lost our ability to empathize with people, to see things from other people's perspective, including our spouses. And then I hear this all the time. I, I get this a ton, okay? And, and I've... I spent a lot of time researching this and thinking about it, and I've come to a conclusion about it, and I think it's right. I hear this all the time. Our problem in our marriage is communication. We're, we're terrible at communication. And actually, no. What I found is that the person that says that is that they're not getting what they want from their spouse, and so they think, if I could just learn how to communicate it better, then they would do what I want them to do, then they would change and be the person I want them to be, then they would be transformed by my wonderful communication. The problem isn't your communication, the problem is, is that maybe you're married to somebody who's just not gonna do it, or maybe you're married to somebody who just can't do it. You know, we can't do everything. We can't be everything to each other. And that's where that grace comes in. That's where that forgiveness comes in. And that's where that idea of being able to adjust expectations so that they're real and rational comes in. It's a really big, a really big issue. It's not necessarily communication, but sometimes it's just simply a lack of humility and a lack of understanding what expectations are reasonable. We are out of time. I have more, but we are out of time, and so I am going to move on. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about parents and children. And uh, again, um, we've done a lot of Wednesday night stuff on this. We're going to pack a lot into next week's uh, message as well, but I would highly recommend it. Uh, there's really good stuff in there next week as well. So let's pray, and we'll um, move into the reflection time. Our Father in heaven, um, marriage is a tough deal, uh, but really all of our relationships are racked with challenges and problems. And so one of the things that you call us to be without necessarily saying it explicitly is you call us to be creative problem solvers, but we need to start that creativeness by coming to you first, by seeking counsel from you by recognizing that your son went to the cross for our sin and then was raised from the tomb to new life. That should give him every right to speak into our marriage and how we should be in marriage. So my prayer is that we would all have the courage to be able to submit ourselves first and foremost to you to be obedient to you. Yeah, there's that word, obey. But to be obedient to you, to try it your way instead of our way. And God, get the gaze of victimhood off ourselves and the gaze of indictment off of others and start to live for others. Let us live in the midst of our values here at Redemption Church, that we are gospel-centered and outward-focused. We believe that all of life is all for Jesus. There are no little people, no little places. 
And we're going to do your work your way. Help us to do that. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a couple more songs as we move into our time of reflection and communion. Every week we take uh, communion here. If our communion servers would please come forward. Man, that was a lot, I know. And I know this is a tough transition to, to move from just, like I said, this mind dump that I hope and pray was helpful, but move from this mind dump into this, now this time where we get to reflect on what Christ has done for us through the cross and the resurrection. And that he's invited us into that space through his supper. When, when with his disciples, he broke that bread and he said, this is my body and it's for you. It's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. When we come forward and take this communion, we remember it's an admission, it's a confession that we need a Savior and it's also a celebration that we have our Savior. And so come reverently, but come joyfully and take in this sacrament. Let's do that now. Chose the lowly 
make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Let's sing that again. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Sing amen.
your children and their children and their children. May his presence go before you and behind you and beside you, all around you, in you. He is with you, he is with you in the morning, in the evening, in your coming, in your going, in your weeping and rejoicing. He is for you, he is for you, he is for you. fascinating about that song we just sang and we read this verse over you as a church all the time when God commanded Moses to tell Aaron to say those words over his people here's the reason he gives right after he says that in verse 27 of number six he says in doing that so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them So when we sing those words just now, when we say these words to you, as we close the service, our prayer is that the name of God would be upon you this week, that you would bring the name of God into everything you do this week. And like we sang, like we say, that he would bless you. So I'm going to pray that over us. And before I do, we do this every month. We call it Intro Sunday. I know that being new in a church can be hard to feel Scene to kind of have someone you can ask your questions to, get to know more about us as a community. So we set this time aside for that. So if you'd like to, meet me in the lobby. If you're new here and you want to know more about us, I'd love to just get to know you a little bit, take you around the campus and orient you to the the campus. So uh, let me pray that over us, uh, that the Lord would bless you and keep you this week that he'd lift up his countenance upon you, give you his peace, make his face shine upon you. And uh, I pray that, that God, you, your name would be on us, your people this week, and that you would bless us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go in peace, live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week. <laughs>